you from the We Dessert Studio in Houston, Texas. You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 30 of The Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Statton, and I'm joined by the infamous duo of Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxton. We hope everyone had a wonderful Valentine's weekend and that you're enjoying your President's Day holiday. Guys, we had quite the eventful week, making our debut on Yahoo Sports Radio, and we even partied with Brooke Evers on Friday night. Kevin, tell us about our appearance on Yahoo Sports. Uh, I was delighted. Uh, it's, of course, our good friend Chris Buckner, the uh, uh, originator of the Fan React app, who invited us on, and we had a terrific time. That's I think we tweeted out and Facebook got links to that. So if you're curious to hear our spot on Yahoo Sports Radio, go ahead and listen to it. Um, somehow we got tricked into me disparaging my own body. Um, <laughs> I sort of talked about how chunky I've become, and that was a little bit unexpected, but it's still a great, great visit, and I enjoyed the segment and uh, look forward to doing more radio in the future. We're growing every day, baby. I love it. I love it. And uh, Jeremy... We actually partied with Brooke Evers on Friday night. That was a lot of fun, wasn't it? Oh my gosh, it was a blast. I mean, uh, the the venue was uh, sort of interesting, but um, having Brooke Evers there totally made up for any weirdness that might have been a proof. Um, no, it, it really was. We, we had a great time. Got to meet Brooke. She's very cool, very down to earth. Uh, had a lot of fun hearing her uh, hearing her perform. She was very good. I don't, I don't know about you, but I could definitely see her playing at like a bigger venue um, to a lot more people. I, I was really impressed with uh, how she did, and uh, I, I had a blast. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I thought she put on a great show. The atmosphere was solid. I can definitely see her like headlining somewhere in Vegas or Ibiza or something like that in the near future. But we actually had the opportunity to speak with her for uh, probably about five minutes after the show, and she was very down-to-earth, a uh, great person. She even offered to come on as another guest for the podcast. So, uh, Brooke, we will definitely try to take you up on that next time you come to Houston. Uh, but, guys, it, it's been a fun week. I also enjoyed going on Yahoo Sports Radio. So uh, we're doing big things here at the Weekly Brew. And as always, we want to remind you that you can find us at at Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, and our Instagram page. You can also find us at weeklybrewcast.com. And of course, if you messed up on Valentine's, didn't get your significant other something great, you can always go to our sponsor, We Desserts. Jeremy, I know that you went to We Desserts on Valentine's Day. Yes, in fact, I did go to We Desserts on Valentine's Day, which my date was very happy with. Uh, we had some of the beignets, and of course, like last time, I made out with a heap of cookies. So um, <laughs> I recommend everyone on Valentine's Day stepping by We Desserts. They're delicious. Valentine's Day will already have passed, but there is no bad time to go to We Desserts because they have good stuff there all the time. I have um, about, on average, a snickerdoodle per day from there, and they have the best <laughs> snickerdoodle cookies I've ever tasted. So that's contributing to my to my body images, which are body image issues we talked about on the radio. But um, but yeah, definitely drop by We anytime. Ten percent off. Let's not forget, uh, listeners. If they mention they are listeners of the podcast, get ten percent off, and then we hear from the owners that you guys dropped in, and visited, and uh, it's just a good experience for everyone all around, really. So definitely. Definitely uh, give them your support. Uh, get your desserts from there. It is a terrific establishment. Absolutely. And again, tell Penny and Jen that the guys at the Weekly Brew sent you by. You'll get 10% off your order. But guys, we have a fun show on deck. Uh, we've got a the song that you heard at the top of the show was Miss Catalina 1992 by the band Buxton. We've got a great interview with their lead singer, Sergio Trevino. We're going to talk about the recent passing of uh, Justice Scalia. We're also going to dive into uh, the sexual assault culture in college athletics that has been... Uh, kind of hard to hear over the past few weeks, but we've got Paul Catalina from ESPN Central Texas joining us to discuss that. But as always, we've got a packed show on deck, so it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. 
You're listening to The Weekly Brew. For those of you that aren't familiar, we actually record this podcast on Sunday afternoon. And so when we plan these shows each week, we kind of try to go off of the big subjects or news stories that are driving the conversation this week. And uh, Saturday afternoon, one of those was presented to us as Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia died at the age of 79 while in Texas on a hunting vacation. Reports suggest uh, that this was due to a heart attack. And uh, obviously, uh, you know, we hate to politicize uh, the death of a, a Supreme Court justice, but that is exactly what happened, you know, just mere moments after uh, the passing was announced uh, from Justice Scalia. You had uh, all presidential candidates kind of trying to uh, leverage and say, all right, President Obama should, you know, delay the appointment of a Supreme Court justice or he should act quickly. It depends on which party you side with, but there was politicizing the death as much as possible. And, and to me, that was kind of hard to hear, but I, I think that we do need to recognize that he was in a very important position and the next justice in the Supreme court will have a huge role for several years to come. So guys, I'm kind of curious, what do you think about the Supreme court post Scalia era? Well, I'm reminded of a Clarence Darrow quote, which is, uh, I have never killed a man, but I have read many obituaries with a great deal of pleasure. And that's sort of um, a lot of the uh, attitude I'm seeing pouring out from people as uh, Scalia has died. Obviously, my Facebook friends are going to skew a little bit left. So people are, you know, ecstatic. And I, I never, it's, it's never really right to celebrate the death of an individual, even when uh, bin Laden was killed. I thought that it was very morbid and weird that people were celebrating in the streets um, that we just basically assassinated someone. So I'm not I'm not really celebrating his death, but I do think that it could have a potentially terrific impact uh, on this country and uh, on where we stand, you know, socially uh, and, and progressive issues that I care a lot about. So it's um it's you know obviously he has people that cared for him. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg obviously uh, was weirdly. Uh, fond of him as well, from what I understand. So, you know, uh, sad to have someone of a great stature like that die, but an exciting opportunity to move forward for this country, I think. I think I, I have a little bit different of a perspective than you, and I, I believe Jeremy probably does as well. Uh, I, I think it's very sad that uh, Justice Scalia passed away suddenly. I mean, he was very entertaining to read and, you know, his opinions uh, whenever, uh, you know, a, a huge verdict or ruling would come out. And, Obviously, I don't want to see an activist judge get put in there. I want to see someone that kind of focuses on, you know, the Constitution at hand and, you know, not trying to politicize that position itself. But I do kind of see your point about, you know, maybe recognizing, you know, the social issues that are in front of us. But, Jeremy, I'm kind of curious what your take on the passing of Justice Scalia means to the Supreme Court. Uh, I mean, it's a huge loss for the Supreme Court. I mean, there is no justice, I think, that kind of uh, carried his weight as well as Justice Scalia did. I mean, the guy was a huge, I mean, just in terms of a legal mind and having an impact on a generation of lawyers and constitutional scholars. I mean, the guy, the guy didn't just write for the legal crowd. He wrote for a really broad audience, which made his opinions, even if you disagreed with them, they were very entertaining uh, to, to read. You know, he, he, um, he, he wrote for kind of the, the, the average guy. He, he could read his opinion opinions and figure out what was going on. Um, I mean, the guy over the years had a, had a huge impact on the court and his decisions. And I think his most popular ones were his dissents. But um, just, a, just a couple cases here that he had a huge impact on. I mean, here's the, the majority opinion right in the Heller case, striking down the DC uh, handgun ban. Um, and the dissent, the Obergefell gay marriage case, um, and, and his his absence in the court, it really leaves a huge vacancy that 
is going to have a huge implication for a couple of cases coming down the pipe here in this year, which for people who don't know, um, if a, a nominee is not appointed and approved by the Senate, then uh, if there's a hung court, then that decision will automatically revert to the lower court's ruling, which I think for some conservatives might be a little troubling. But um, certainly, I think when I think of uh, who I'd like to see on the court next, I would love to see Obama uh, leave it for the next president, whoever that might be. Um, but yeah, this is a huge loss for the country. Um, I, I was really disappointed in some of the reaction, some of the schadenfreude uh, on the left and on social media. I, I was really just kind of taken back by just how vicious some of it was. Um, you know, I, I, I certainly can't speak the comparison. Um, I, I would, me personally, I would think it would be okay to, you know, uh, sit back with a little bit of glee with the uh, assassination of Osama bin Laden and not Scalia, even if you didn't agree with the guy. But uh, that's just that's just my take. Um, I, I I think going forward here, um, it it's certainly uh, going to be this is going to be a fight between the Republicans and the Senate in Obama. Um, but I, I'm I'm not quite sure uh, how this is going to pan out because we haven't had a situation like this since uh, I think the 1920s. There hasn't been a lame duck appointment in a long time. Yeah, that fact is actually accurate. According to the National Review, it has been 80 years since a Supreme Court justice was confirmed in an election year to a vacancy that arose that year. So I think there's going to be a lot of debate among the presidential candidates on what to do in this situation. Um, but again, uh, Justice Scalia dead at the age of 79. He was appointed during the Reagan administration in the 1980s. I'm curious. What do you guys think is the proper situation? Should they go through the approval, the appointment process now, or should they push it back when the next president is elected? Because I'm just looking at it from my perspective. You know, I, I vote Republican. I, I vote toward the right. But I just don't see the Republicans winning the White House, and I think they're even at risk to lose the Senate. So if if I want to have any sort of leverage or power or control or even say in who this next Supreme Court justice is, I think the Republicans almost have to bargain, and I think that's the best shot that they have is to work with President Obama and, and get someone you know, that is centrist, and obviously they're going to lean left a little bit, but I see this as the only point that they can actually cooperate. Sorry, I could not disagree more, Austin. Um, I, I do think the Republicans have a shot at the White House. I mean, Bernie Sanders is not a viable candidate. I don't believe Hillary Clinton can be inaugurated from a jail cell. So, uh, you know, despite Trump, despite uh, all the hoopla in the Republican debate, I do think we have a shot at the White House. And so, um, I, I, but it, all to say, I don't think uh, that the Republicans should work with Obama because I, I don't want to see sort of a loony activist judge um, filling Scalia's seat. Of course, as a as a Republican, as conservative, I'm biased in wanting to uh, I want one of my guys in there instead of one of his guys. Um, and and really, I, I don't see this going anywhere. Um, the president clearly has the prerogative to appoint, but the Senate GOP also has a prerogative to deny an appointment. And there's plenty of democratic precedent for doing so. That's what's so discouraging about this is we can't talk about it except in the context of like winning or getting our guys in there, you know, and I, I, I fall prey to the same thing. I think that the death of Scalia, who um, is in my mind kind of a philosophical scumbag, regardless of what you think of the amusingness of his opinions, um, there's really no way to look at this without saying like, you know, okay, should we or shouldn't we not based on, you know, the the constitutional precedent but really like who wants to win in this scenario and there's no way to discuss this issue that isn't politicized and that's what you talk about seeing on facebook you know i i, I sort of saw a lot of the same stuff too this issue affects everybody really and everybody has a reaction and it is sort of um the underbelly or darker side of of politics i think and and the way that people respond to this says a lot about them but uh, i don't know i i 
in terms of what I would prefer to see, obviously, I would prefer to see someone fill that seat as soon as possible, because I think that uh, having eight Supreme Court justices obviously is not ideal. Very sad situation overall in the passing of Justice Scalia, and obviously it's going to be a hotly politicized issue uh, heading into the you know the presidential election. But uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg actually released a statement today, said that she lost a treasured friend and that they were best buddies. So uh, Supreme Court is hurting right now. Americans lost a uh, great constitutional scholar, and uh, I'm definitely fascinated to see how this plays out within the next few months. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. During our college football preview podcast in August, we welcomed ESPN Central Texas's Paul Catalina on as the show's first guest. We're glad to have Paul back on the show. Paul, now that football season is over, how have you been doing? I'm all right. I mean, fully involved in basketball now. So uh, baseball's coming up. So I've got uh, I've got that to, to look forward to. So, yeah, I mean, you know, there's never an, there's never really an off season for, for me. So. Uh, I, I, I'm always happy when football season's over because it means I can take a breath. I mean, I was at the Super Bowl in San Francisco or Super Bowl week all that week. So that's hectic and takes all my energy. So once that's over, I'm, I'm fine with it. I'm good. It never really stops. <laughs> well, that's good that it doesn't stop. And, you know, last time we were on, it was more positive previewing the college football season, you know, who we thought would make the, uh, the, the college football playoffs. And unfortunately, now we're bringing you back in a time in which it's not necessarily the best news. Now, I, I just for the record, for those of you that don't know, I attended Baylor University, uh, worked there in the athletic department for three years. And uh, back in August when we spoke, Sam Ukawachu was going through trial. Uh, and a few days after we spoke, he was convicted of rape. And uh, just a few weeks ago, ESPN ran a story on Outside the Lines, kind of profiling Baylor University and how they've mishandled, uh, you know, essentially some of these rape cases and it's taken it's made national headlines over the past few weeks some have even called for president ken Starr to resign i'm curious since you live in waco since you work at espn central texas what is the vibe right now in waco and what can you tell us about the mood in the city and surrounding that university well i would say the vibe uh people are stressed out about it and, and upset they want answers i think that's the thing you know that there have been press releases I don't think Baylor has, and I've said this on my show, so it's not like I'm I'm breaking any new ground here, but uh, they have not done a good job of keeping everybody kind of in the loop as things have gone on. Now, they can't talk during this investigation. Legally, it would be silly for them to just come out and say what everybody wants to hear all the time. People need to understand that. But a little bit of progress reports and some a little bit more compassion than they've shown would would be nice there's not much they can do but a little more than the bare minimum would have been nice i think that's what people are, are wanting to hear uh and now it's it's kind of gotten it's expanded past the athletic department in that the latest allegation of someone whose case wasn't handled well was a girl who was who was raped by just another student so it's not necessarily that they're protecting football players it it kind of shows that you know as as a university, maybe they don't have a handle on how to do it the right way, no matter who is making the accusation. And, you know, if you bring in uh, the Tennessee situation and anything else that's going on, it, this is a widespread problem across the country. But that doesn't matter to Baylor. It matters for Baylor that Baylor has a problem, and that's what they need to focus on. What do you make of the school issuing a press release on Super Bowl Sunday, kind of saying if they were, uh, you know, felt bad about the situation, that they were trying to work toward it? And then also this past Friday, the Board of Regents met, said that they were going to take action, essentially offering uh, more counseling, more services. But again, that was a press release that was issued late on Friday afternoon. It seems like Baylor and their communications team are almost trying to 
I don't, I don't want to say sweep it under the rug, but that's what it appears like to me. Well, look, and, and those two days and, and you guys look, Austin, you're in PR, Kevin, you're a sports writer, you know, you know, you know what a news dump is, you know, you know, when the times are when people aren't uh, supposed to be looking and, and those two look a little bit like news dumps, but uh, or a lot like news dumps. I think that they 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 need that's what they need to do better of is it don't wait for something to happen and don't put it you know you know later on in the in the day uh, just do it when you have the information let it out so or if you have the information and it's not a great time like Super Bowl Sunday do it on Monday morning right. I mean, there's there's no nothing's going to change other than you might look better uh, that's the whole thing that Baylor's problem is public relations-wise, at least with the way they respond to things, they've not been proactive. They've been reactive. So every time something happens, they have to make a statement. That's that's why they probably just need progress reports to be like, listen, the investigation is still going on. Like, you could have wrapped all this together. More counseling and more all of this could have been done, you know, four months ago. They could have said, hey, look, we're going to bring in more counselors. We probably need to do that. We need to expand you know, maybe our awareness program, we need to do that. These are all things that maybe you know right away before the investigation gets too deep in. You know, you can say all this stuff back in the fall and say, look, we're, we're continuing this. And then just throw out, look, the investigation by Pepper Hamilton is still ongoing. We'll release what we can release when we can release it when the investigation is done. But it's still ongoing and, and keep that, that going on. I, I think that's been the biggest issue because – Again, this problem didn't happen overnight. It's not going to get fixed overnight. Clearly, if this investigation is now into its fifth or sixth month, it's a bigger deal, and there's a lot more things to go through than maybe you know the group of us here can even imagine. Well, that's fine. That's good that you're doing something, but don't just sit back and wait for somebody to come out and say, well, this happened to me, Baylor didn't do anything, and then you respond to it. Michelle Davis, who's the nurse examiner from McLennan County, you know, she told Outside the Lines, Baylor has more sexual assault cases that we do exams on compared to other schools of the same approximate population. So, I mean, it's a, it's a nationwide problem. We're hearing more and more about it. Is it fair to say that there's something in particular about Baylor, or, uh, or is this just happened to be the, the place that we're hearing about now? I think it just happens to be the place we're hearing about now. And look, it, it wouldn't surprise me if... Um, you know, if Baylor has a little bit more than, than normal, I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, but I mean, you could bring up another school that uh, that's a bigger school that maybe doesn't have as big of a problem, and that would surprise me that they don't. I, I it's a it, when I was I was at the Sam Ugawachu trial every day the whole week, and I was there. Michelle Davis was the who testified in that trial, and uh, when she started reading off statistics of nationwide college sexual assaults. Uh, it made me wonder, like, oh, the, what was going on when I was in college that I didn't, that I personally didn't know. Like, I didn't know anybody. I mean, how, how could I not know if it's happening this often? How it, how could I not know if somebody? Because you, you, we all probably know somebody who did something. It really, uh, that's kind of how many there are, and it kind of shocked me uh, how bad it really is. So, I don't, uh, I don't think it's necessarily a Baylor. Baylor's worse than than anyone else overall when you really look at the statistics. But Baylor has a problem, and they need to deal with it, and maybe they've not noticed their problem or not acknowledged their problem uh, until it was thrown right back in their face with a couple of really bad cases. Now, Paul, I'm kind of curious. Baylor and some of their press releases have uh, talked about FERPA 
and the federal guidelines that prohibit them from speaking about cases before um, they're able, before the investigations have concluded. Um, do you think that they're kind of hiding behind that and, and just not, uh, not taking enough steps quickly enough? Or what can you tell us about how that's playing into the situation? Uh, they're going to keep using FERPA, uh, believe me, and, and trying to get information from them and, and you know, asking questions. They, I mean, they constantly, they use FERPA all the time, whether it's this or anything else. FERPA is a thing that Baylor uses all the time. And the state just told them, that they don't have to release because they're a private institution, that they don't have to release the results of the external investigation. If they don't want to, they can, they can, you know, keep doing that. They don't have to release the salaries of the coaches. They don't have to release the salaries of their employees like, you know, Texas A&M or Texas or Texas tech would have to do. They can continue to keep that under, uh, under the, the roof and they can quote FERPA. It does look like they're using it to hide things. And, and that's why I think that maybe, uh, they need to talk to some people and get them to waive. I think some people would waive some situations for them to be able to talk about it, good and bad. I think there's some people who maybe had good experiences and Baylor helped them out uh, the way that they were supposed to and, and things proceeded along the way and it worked out. And then there's some people that, that have bad ones that would probably waive it either way. I think that they, they probably need to talk to some of those people and find out if they would. That way they can appear to be more transparent. You know, I'm also reading quotes from Hillary Laborde, who's the uh, McLennan County ADA and prosecuted both Tevin Elliott and Sam Ukawachu. And she says, I do think the way Baylor is treating them affects whether they go to the police, which could mean that there may even be an underreporting of incidents. And, and how would you characterize the way that Baylor is treating? And is that something that's going to change in the near future? Um, I, and look, and this is just my, this is my opinion. And this is, this is what I gleaned from being at the Sam Ukawachu trial, Hillary, uh, you know, uh, I, I do think that there is a little bit of, um, you know, well, it's a he said, she said, you better, you know, um, you better not do this. You better be ready. And they kind of they kind of lay out all the details of everything that's going to happen to them, you know, to make, I think, in their mind to make sure that they want to go ahead with it. But sometimes it's not the victim doesn't want to hear formulaically what's going to happen to them when they go to you know, when they go to the police, they want to hear that everything's going to be okay. And then when they go to the police, even though it's going to be hard, they're doing the right thing. I, I, I think that that's, that's, that's kind of where it goes askew. And, um, you know, and it's hard, you know, in the Sam Ukawachu case individually, I, I think that she got the sense because she was over at his house after midnight. And I think that that kept coming up in her school investigation was, well, why were you over there anyway? Why were you over there anyway? Well, it doesn't matter. I mean, I, I know it's, she might have been a little, the, the victim might have been a little naive herself, but again, no is no, no matter if it happens at one right. thirty-five a.m. or one thirty-five p.m., it doesn't matter. So that's that's where it kind of gets askew, and, and I think that, that that's where they kind of make them feel like, well, you're not completely on my side because you're asking me these questions that, don't make it feel like you believe me. And I think that, that that's maybe why they are afraid to go to the police, because if the university doesn't believe them, well, the police have less uh, 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 skin in the game for them to, to believe either. You know, and so I think that that makes it more difficult. And, and look, the girl uh, who wrote the blog uh, post that, got, that went all over Facebook and, uh, you know, started the candlelight vigil the other night, uh, she didn't go to the police at all. I mean, she didn't go... She didn't report the thing for six or seven weeks, and that's 
she's a very she look and she's a cautionary tale if you if you've been raped uh, that's usually something you should do right away and with Tevin Elliott's victims and Sam Ukwachu's victim they they all went pretty much right away and got a rape kit done and, and DNA and all those things she didn't do any of that so it made it very hard for the university to believe her at all uh, but even still they um, they in in according to her blog uh, they weren't very compassionate with her either but that's her point of view. You had mentioned the candlelight vigil that took place last week, and a, a lot of people turned out for that, and uh, you know, in kind of unison saying that Baylor needs to do something. President Ken Starr issued a statement saying, "We hear you. We're going to take steps." However, it, it seems that you know, with Baylor taking so long to actually respond, and as you said, not be proactive in handling and getting in, out in front of this issue, I've seen some reports suggesting that maybe Ken Starr should resign. How do you feel about that statement? Do you think Ken Starr should step down, or do you think something is ultimately going to happen with the administration at the university? Look, the Board of Regents loves Judge Starr, and he's done a very good job at Baylor in almost every other regard when it comes to, to these things. It's just that this is a, this is going to be a big black eye on on his you know time as the president, no matter what. I think saying for him to resign is a little bit premature in that a lot of this stuff um, – some a lot of a lot of the things being reported. Tevin Elliott, uh, that happened when he was on the job for, I don't know, three months, you know. So let's uh, let's take a step back before he's the one who gets fired, because they, in in the long run, and, and I think a lot of the reason that a lot of that pressure is coming on is because the girl who wrote the blog says that she met with him, although she doesn't have a lot of documentation of of stuff that's that's gone on. So again, I'm not saying she's lying, and I would never say she's lying, but uh, again, um, before you know, she has one meeting, and uh, before we do that, uh, let's let's see what what he and the rest of the administration come up with. Uh, there are going to be people who do lose their jobs. I, I think I think the one person in the crosshairs for a lot of people is Bethany McCraw, who is the the dean of discipline. I don't want to judicial affairs or something. I don't want to get her title wrong, but she is the person who uh, all the victims in the Sam Ukawachu and Talvin Elliott cases went to. Uh, and she's the one who investigated those, and she's also the one who didn't, you know, put any punitive action on those student athletes at all. Let the team suspend them, uh, and that's what made Baylor's athletic department look bad. Uh, and then that's that's another problem is that the athletic department looks at the university to to do something, and then they they in turn have to to be the ones who do it. Uh, I I think that that's that's kind of where it's gotten in, into a mess where. It's not so so bad to suspend someone from school pending the outcome of a trial. That covers you a lot more than well pending the outcome of a trial will determine what happens then. No, uh, suspend somebody pending the outcome of the trial. If they if they happen to be innocent, they can come back to school and everything's fine. But sometimes you know that's that's the better thing to do. She I think is going to get uh, looked at for sure because she's the one who's been. Uh, testifying in both trials she's the one who did the investigation she's the one who was mentioned in the otl report so uh, that all being said she some other people maybe in that department will get looked at but i think before it gets to ken Starr, there's some other people because again uh, he's the president he's supposed to know as much as he can but he can't know about all fourteen thousand students and what's gone on and this this incident and that incident and this one uh, that that's awful hard for him to be in his purview, that's why he has people underneath him that are supposed to take care of that. 
That, I think, will happen before Judge Starr steps down. Paul, kind of switching gears a little bit, um, I'm curious about the, you know, the systemic issues um, kind of in the broader cultural context of all this. There was a case, Tennessee, where a, a lawsuit has been brought against the university for um, some, inc- some incidents that, were, that uh, happened in regards to the football team and sexual assault. Um, one, one story that was particularly problematic to me was a, a football player who tried to stand up for one of the girls uh, who's suing the university and actually got beat up uh, by some of the other football players um, trying to do that. What can you tell us about uh, what's going on there? Not being as close to that situation, all I can tell you is that, uh, and in reading everything that's gone on at Tennessee, including, look, a, a lot of the accusations levied at, at Peyton Manning uh, and that suit that happened a long, long time ago. But uh, since Tennessee has a systematic problem when it comes to sexual assault and the athletic department. And football money is, drives many universities, no more so than Tennessee that's got a 100,000-seat stadium that, you know, they've got to fill. And, you know, I think that there's – they've got a problem. And no matter what you read and, and uh, about Tennessee, they've got a problem with reporting, with victim support, with anything that you talk about, especially when it comes to that football team. And, you know <laughs> – you think about it, and for what? Uh, you know, since they won a national championship in 1998, that was my freshman year in college. I know because they beat my team, Florida State, and I was there. Okay, since then, they've done nothing but make bad decisions when it comes to football. So what are you protecting? Who are you protecting on this team, <laughs> really, to, to do this? You know, clean it up, get it out, and, and, and then move forward, and you'll be really better good point. I mean, like, what are you protecting? You're protecting you – know, and look, and not that it makes it better, but – it's easier to understand a Jameis Winston type situation where a team's about to win a national title and they they said, listen, we're, we're by this guy 100% pending the outcome of the legal thing and he's innocent until we're proven guilty because he's the Heisman Trophy winner and they're about to play in the national title game than it is we're behind these guys who are, you know, six and six or five and seven every year. That's what doesn't make sense to me. Uh, and it doesn't make sense. I mean, I know that it doesn't make a difference if you're guilty, you're guilty. But what are they protecting? Like what, you know, <laughs> just just go ahead and, and clean it up all the way. And, and look, and I'm not supporting anybody staying on a team if they're a, a, a sex offender. But uh, you understand that more than than just keeping people on the team for no reason. You know, it's just, uh, well, you know, we just don't want the team to look bad. You're going to look bad either way. Uh, the only way out is through. Just get it done with. I mean, you know, clean it up, admit your problem, and move on. People will be much more ready to accept you if you do that as opposed to, well, we don't know, you know, what's going on here. You've got now six lawsuits because of the way you've handled it. I mean, that to me, that that shows a bigger systematic issue that, that, that they've got to fix. Now, one of the one of the teams that you cover a lot is the Dallas Cowboys. And, you know, with Tony Romo having some injury issues, there's been a lot of talk about Robert Griffin or possibly Johnny Manziel coming to the team. And, and speaking specifically of Johnny Manziel, I mean, he's had a disastrous last few months. I mean, uh, stemming from the, you know, the, the helicopter chase almost in Fort Worth, uh, the assault charges brought on by his ex-girlfriend, Colleen Crowley. I mean, to me, it's just a sad situation overall, and I don't think he ends up with the Cowboys, but what can you tell us about that situation and then possibly the Cowboys bringing in a free agent quarterback? If there are 32 teams in the NFL, which there are, uh, if, if any one of the 32 teams wants to bring Johnny Manziel in, they're not doing a favor for Johnny Manziel. Johnny Manziel needs to be in one place and one place only, and he needs to be the one who goes there 
because that's where he's at right now. He needs to be in rehab. That's where he needs to be. Playing football right now should be the furthest thing from his mind, which it maybe is because the guy seems to just want to party all the time. And it's a scary situation. And uh, I hope for his sake that he gets into some treatment and, and, and winds up doing well uh, because he's he's got a he's if he wants to have a football career at all he needs to get clean I don't think he realizes that uh, I don't I, I I know I know I can say pretty surely that in 2016 he will not play for the Cowboys now Jerry Jones could surprise us all and if Johnny starts doing the right thing and the Cowboys have, have kind of been the place for you know Jerry's home for wayward football players <laughs> Greg Hardy and uh, Tank Johnson and Pac-Man Jones and Demetrius Underwood, Alonzo Spellman. The list goes on. <laughs> yeah, the list goes on and on. So there's there's lots of guys. And, and, and Jerry, and they have the department that Calvin Hill oversees and uh, about, you know, making sure guys are doing the right thing. Josh Brent, uh, you know, so like lots of guys like that. But it's just something they don't need to do. And I, I, think, the, I think they learned maybe from Greg Hardy that, you know, they, they got involved in the Greg Hardy business, and I don't think that really helped them all that much. You know, I mean, uh, after and, – and I believe after those photos came out, all his bravado about being innocent didn't matter anymore, and he kind of he kind of finally saw how the world saw him, and it really affected his playing, which it should have. I'm glad it did. I'm glad that the world saw – I mean, he was able – he was able to see what the world saw and go, oh, my gosh, okay, well – there's less people on my side now because now they know what I did and I can drop this and he kind of dropped the charade a little bit, but uh, it still, it affected him on the field and the Cowboys were worse off for it, for him, for him being there because, you know, he, they, they had a good situation, a good locker room. They brought in a guy who's a little bit toxic from the outside who works really hard. I can tell you that from watching him practice, nobody works harder than Greg Hardy, but that doesn't matter when, you know, off the field, you're you're such a bad person that, you know, all the questions are going to be not only just about, you know, how he is off the field to, to him, but to the team. How do you feel about having this dirt bag, you know, three lockers down? Uh, I do think, though, on the other end of the spectrum, that if Robert Griffin III cannot find a place where he is going to be a part of a starting competition, that Jerry Jones will bring in Robert Griffin III. I do think that that is real. But I do think that Robert will uh, go through every opportunity he has to start throughout the league before he does that. So will it be Philadelphia, San Francisco, Denver, uh, places like that 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 need a starting quarterback? I think he'll look at all those places. Brock Osweiler probably going to be the starter in Denver. But that doesn't mean that they can't bring in RG3 to compete with him. And if RG3 is healthy and Gary Kubiak's offense, which likes to emphasize rollouts, I don't know if that's not a bad thing altogether for him to wind up in Denver or in San Francisco with Chip Kelly and his offense. If Colin Kaepernick's relationship with that team can't be repaired and they, they part ways with him and he's off to somewhere else, San Francisco would be a good place for him. But uh, ultimately, uh, I, I do think the Cowboys – might be where he ends up because he may want to say, look, I'll be a backup for a, a year or two in Dallas. Maybe that could be a situation if Tony Romo gets injured again, where I take the reins and Tony Romo retires and I'm close to home and uh, people like me again. And it's all good. <laughs> again, we have, 
Paul Catalina from ESPN Central Texas here on the Weekly Brew Podcast. And uh, Paul, you are an elite company. You are one of the the only two-timers that we've had on this show. So we definitely appreciate you joining us again on the Weekly Brew Podcast. And uh, for those that might not be familiar with your work or want to learn more uh, about what you do, where can they find you online and social media? Uh, they can find me, uh, 1660ESPN.com is our website. You can stream us uh, through there. Uh, we're, I'm on 3 to 6 Central every single day with with David Smoke and Butch Henry on a show called You Make the Call. Uh, and we're also, you can find me on Twitter at Paul Catalina. And uh, I don't tweet as much as I used to uh, because I uh, I just I don't like it. Uh, so, <laughs> but I tweet occasionally, so I try to make them count. I like that. I like that strategy. But, Paul, we definitely appreciate your time. It's a fascinating conversation. And uh, thanks for joining us again for the second time on the podcast. All right. Anytime, guys. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. One of my favorite things about The Weekly Brew is when we're fortunate enough to interview talented musical artists. This week, that is no exception as we welcome lead singer Sergio Trevino from the band Buxton. Sergio, how are you doing this week? I'm doing great. I'm, I'm doing really good. Now, for those that aren't familiar with Buxton, you're a five-member band that hails from Houston, and you said in a quote that we take from a lot of different genres and present it in a way that I think is most honest to us. Tell us about your style. It is ever-changing. Uh, I'd say um, generally it leans towards a folky, twangy element, which is just kind of a natural instinct for me. Um, you know, I, that's just my default style. You know, So I guess that's what it kind of lends itself towards. We played your song, Miss Catalina, in 1992 to open up the show, and you've got a really cool music video out there for that. When you guys go through that creative process from you know writing songs to putting out an album and then putting out a music video, what does that creative process look like? Me, I'm, I'm the lead songwriter, so I'll write a, the basic song out, you know, I guess the skeleton of the song, and um, I go with the other guys, and they kind of transform it into... Uh, something else and that's kind of why uh, where Buxton is Buxton uh, the song you know you mentioned Miss Catalina uh, was like a really chill mellow folk ballad kind of thing and uh, one of the guys in the band Austin um, took it and he's like let's uh let's pick up the pace on this song let's make it really fast and rocking and I was very I was kind of like I don't know about that and then uh we kind of started jamming it, and I was like, okay, yeah, this is this is a great idea. Let's just do it this way. And um, and so, because, yeah, I think the narrative of the song is a little, uh, I, I like it, and I, I think I was like, okay, well, it's kind of a delicate, you know, narrative, but it's like, I don't know, it just sounded, too, it sounded really cool. So, okay, so we got that, we recorded it, uh, we have a label, it's New West, and, um, and uh, it's, uh, making a video, it's just, part of the process of promoting a record in, in the modern times, you know, so we uh, were like, okay, let's, let's make a video. And we kind of tossed out a lot of ideas on how to do it. We kind of knew that Catalina, Miss Catalina was the song that we wanted to, you know, be the single or the, or we wanted to push the most. So, um, so uh, we got with a, a couple guys here in town and um, kind of, hashed out that concept for for that video and and, and yeah, they may <laughs> we're working on another video too right now that we've been working on for about a year <laughs> but hopefully that one comes out soon that's uh, for um uh, what i do the opening track 
One thing I'm always fascinated by is names and where names come from. So earlier in the week when I was kind of searching through your guys' catalog and, and, and looking for your stuff, um, you know, I, I searched Buxton on iTunes and I ended up with some audiobooks like uh, Sci-Fi Fantasy Erotica or Feet Fetish Erotica um, and some elf, Elven stuff as well. So what is what does Buxton mean? Where does it come from? And, uh, and, and what was the, I guess, the meaning behind that name for you guys? Buxton's been together for about 12 or 13 years. And so uh, I'm... You know, I'm 33 now, so imagine, okay, the 20-year-old version of me is like, okay, we got a band now, so what are we going to call ourselves? So you you don't, you're kind of just trying to figure out a name. So it's from the movie uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Uh, Francis (laughs) Buxton is the guy that steals Pee-wee's bike. And and, uh, that's what it is. So so we just put on the movie Pee-wee and we're like, Buxton, that's a good, that's a good name. Keep it with the names idea. Uh, Half a Native is your most recent album, which I love. I've been listening to all week, and uh, I'm a big fan. Obviously, we like the Catalina track, Miss Catalina track from it as well. But um, what was the? It seems kind of thematically tied together, like a sense of maybe loneliness uh, or forlornness. What was the? I guess the mood or the theme behind that album, putting it together. We went into the studio with about 25 songs, so there was a lot more material, and that we were kind of working with you know, whittled it down into, I guess, something cohesive, you know, something that feels a certain way, you know. There is a uh, a general, I guess, uh, melancholy, I guess, tone, um, even though there's some tracks like, even even songs like Miss Catalina, though they have energy, uh, you know, there's a, there's an element of sadness to it, and uh, songs like Icebreaker, you know, where uh, it's upbeat, there's comedy, but it's it, the general idea is, you know, I guess something uh, like these are things that cannot work out. These people cannot work out because, one, this guy's in, you know, it's just something that's not meant to be. And one of my questions for you is you guys are Houston-based, obviously. If I understand correctly, the new album, Half a Native, you guys actually recorded in Los Angeles, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, with um, Tom Monahan, he's. Uh, I was really excited to work with him because he um, he's the same producer that does a lot of uh, Avenger Banhart's records and Vetiver, and he has a great ability to make albums sound um, old, in my opinion, like not a uh, contemporary. It's not lo-fi, but it's not. It doesn't sound squeaky clean, like um, you know, super high fidelity, you know. So. Uh, he has a, a really great ability to make records sound like, I don't know, like they were made in the 70s or something. <laughs> and, uh, I uh, I just love the way he produces, and he's kind of a taskmaster. So going out there, uh, you know, we felt like we had, I don't know if we had the idea that it was going to be a vacation or something, but we were doing like 12-hour days, and we were there for two weeks, and it was, uh, it was brutal. It was a, in, very, very intense, and... Uh, and the clock was ticking, and we're trying to make this record that we want to make. And we'd go out there not exactly having a clear picture, and then we'd come back with the product. So it was a, a really intense but awesome experience. So you guys are from Houston originally, and, and one thing we ask a lot of the Houston bands that we try to talk to and promote is what, to your mind, and having been in this scene, is there anything that's distinctive or, or particularly uh, engaging or interesting about the Houston music scene? What what defines the Houston music scene? I wouldn't say there's one specific thing about the Houston scene that's... I, I, I'm a huge supporter of the Houston music scene. I think it's 
I'm super, super proud of what it is, you know. I feel like it is an underrated in, in a lot of in a lot of ways. Um, uh, I think there's just a lot of camaraderie, I guess, in in the music scene. There's so many bands that are doing great things, and I feel very little um, like what is uh, there's I don't know. There's no people that I I feel like everybody's excited when the other person is succeeding you know or uh everybody's very supportive of each other and uh i feel like it's not a cutthroat kind of environment and um you know people aren't trying to step on other people to get somewhere you know i think uh it's just a <laughs> it's a very peaceful and talented community and uh i, I don't know you could, i don't think you could ask for anything better than that it's uh it's just it's just very supportive and really great. And so you guys are, uh, you said you're writing right now. What is that process like? Because I know you said you're the lead uh, writer. So does it go through you first and then you present stuff to the other guys? And if so, what, um, you know, what is the source of inspiration or what's your typical writing day like? So I generally try and put some time aside to write. Um, and it's kind of a, it's a, it's a slow process for me sometimes. It, it, it depends. I go through phases where I might write or three songs in a week and then I go through phases where I won't write a song for six months so um, it's something you can't force and um, and I'm the only I'm the only lyrical writer in the band and uh, some of the some of the other members do contribute uh, when it comes to um, uh, when it comes to um, like musical ideas and concepts and so they might say hey check out you know, this beat I made with this you know, app or, or check out this guitar part or whatever. And uh, and that might inspire me to write something to that. Uh, but generally, um, I, I'll write, the you know, the basic, uh, basic song and then we'll turn it into a, a full song. Again, we have Sergio Trevino, lead singer for the band Buxton. And Sergio, you, again, you guys have a new album called Half a Native Out. For fans that are interested in finding that on, uh, you know, iTunes, SoundCloud, or, or Spotify, what is the best place for them to find your new album? And also, in terms of social media, how can they connect with you guys? You can find the album on Spotify or iTunes. Um, you can find it at your local record store if you're here in Houston or uh, you know, we do, we are, our record is in a bunch of shops, uh, you know, your, your local record shop. What about social media? How can they connect with you on there? Yeah, you could find uh, Buxton at buxtonband.com or you can find Buxton on Facebook uh, at Buxton Band. Perfect. We'll definitely encourage all of our listeners to go and find Buxton and also to purchase their new album, Half a Native. Uh, it's great. I know Kevin and I definitely enjoy it. But uh, Sergio, we definitely appreciate you taking the time out and discussing uh, your music and your sound. And uh, we wish you the best of luck. And we also hear you're getting married. So best of luck with that in the future. Uh, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Closing time.
kind of a mixed bag of issues we discussed on the podcast today. We, we discussed about the uh, the dark times at uh, Baylor University right now in uh, Tennessee. We also discussed the passing of Justice Scalia and what that means for the Supreme Court. We also had a great interview with Sergio Trevino from the band Buxton. Guys, did you enjoy this week's show? Yeah, actually, I particularly got into Buxton's music. Their new album is really strong, kind of a different sound, kind of an exciting sound. And I've been really uh, listening through all the tracks, and obviously we played my favorite at the top of the show. But uh, certainly check them out. Uh, you can buy their album on iTunes. You can follow them on Twitter and Facebook and so forth. I'm a, I am now a big fan of theirs as well, which has worked out well. Every time we've had a musical guest, they've ended up being really solid, and I've become a really big fan of theirs. So, uh, and a great interview with Paul as well. He's always terrific. Yeah, any, anytime we can have Paul Kennelly on the show, uh, it's a great show. Uh, guys, ex- exceptional talent for uh, ESPN Central Texas. Um, I, I also, you know, I love talking politics, even though uh, coming off the death of Justice Scalia, uh, I'm a little, a little bummed right now. But uh, no, I, I had a great time. Uh, podcasting with you guys yeah it's always a great show and we want to make sure that if you like our content here that you go and rate us on itunes give us a five-star review and uh, kevin we had a lot of feedback this week tell us about it holy cow this has been the best week in recent memory uh there were like four new reviews you guys are awesome we ask you to do these things because it helps us and when you do do these things it does help us and it makes me feel just i mean like warm and tingly all over um many of you guys know that i podcast in the nude for uh for authenticity so i sound more real <laughs> I got to tell you, I just, I feel great, warm all over at the moment. But um, so this week, S. Rassen 7, uh, great stuff, five stars. Very few podcasts that come from guys knowledgeable about Houston and the national sports scene. It's the drive time sports talk that AMFM have long since stopped providing for me. That is terrific uh, feedback, and we appreciate that. Um, Britt L., 1128, weekly brew, week, weekly routine. I thoroughly enjoy listening to the podcast at work on Monday mornings. It has become part of my routine. The podcast is definitely a great way to stay informed. It has such a variety of topics. Thank you for getting some musical guests. You're welcome, Britt L. And we had another one for you today, so we hope you enjoy that as well. Woo Sports, JRay324, five stars. These guys do a great job. I love listening to their witty, insightful, and often comedic take on the goings-on in the world of sports. Well said. It's one of the few podcasts I look forward to every week. Uh, we feel the same way. And then someone wrote Dope Brew, which might be my favorite title we've had yet for a review that's from ld84scm these guys are great a little bit of everything here for everyone kevin cook and the whole crew do an amazing job and i'm hooked glad to be hearing this podcast you should too thanks for shouting me out by name ld84scm <laughs> those were all terrific reviews and i could not feel better right now so make kevin's week happy this next week go to itunes tell us what you like tell us what you don't like give us a five-star review We definitely appreciate all of the feedback. And again, we encourage you to also follow us on our social media platforms. You can search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at weeklybrewcast.com. But we're not just limited to iTunes reviews. In fact, we had a text message from a listener in Anchorage, Alaska, uh, discussing the Super Bowl issue. And uh, she brought up a good point. I'm kind of curious to hear what some of your takes are. Her name is Jackie, and she said that she was watching with a group, and they were all pulling for the Broncos and a sentimental finish for Peyton, as well as a perhaps small lesson in humility for Cam. She said that though none of us are haters, the question that popped into my head was, does the performance of the team you are pulling for completely skew your perception of the entire production? And she said that it was very clear that your crew was disappointed with the outcome, but also felt that the entertainment was mediocre and the adverts had flopped. Uh, she said in our group, even those who dislike Coldplay in general thought the halftime show was the bomb. I agree. I loved Beyonce. And she said that they thought the ads were funny, but may have been a bit odd. So I'm kind of curious, do you think that plays a role in you know kind of how we 
discuss things on the podcast based on you know the teams that we're rooting for i mean i i know that we try to be neutral a little bit but i i, I do think we're all pulling for the panthers or at least we thought the panthers were going to win the game i don't try to be neutral at all ever i've never once tried to be neutral <laughs> um and i will say that obviously we're pulling for that. i think every one of us went on the record as calling you know the panthers are going to beat the spread of six and a half or whatever it was so it was kind of a bad look for us i think it was a really insightful text i appreciate that perspective from a listener um because definitely without a doubt what we expected to happen what we had gone on record saying was likely to happen I mean I don't know about you guys I was slightly embarrassed to come back on after you know Denver whooped up on him that badly and we had predicted a blowout victory for the Panthers so yes I think there's no question that that affects everything about the way you view the experience she pointed out in particular I don't know if you read this part but the uh the Super Bowl children ads you know that she thought I guess she's a family person she has children if I'm not mistaken we know from her text and um and she sort of thought the Super Bowl family football is family ad was kind of cutesy whereas I my worst fear is of my girlfriend being pregnant and me having to be a father before I'm ready. And so the idea of like a Super Bowl child is sort of terrifying to me. And that also colors the way that I view that ad. And I found it to be a very weird ad. You know, I tweeted out that if you were waiting for Roger Goodell's permission to have unprotected sex, you got it. But um, it was it's it's interesting the way that our lenses sort of color the experiences that we have. And I think that um, I don't know, that's really insightful. I appreciated that text and that feedback. And I think everybody should sort of consider the perspectives that they take into any situation because it certainly alters uh, the way you experience something. Yeah, and I absolutely love that text message because it, it allows us to discuss the issue a little bit. And, you know, we all come from, you know, we were all watching the game together. So it's nice to hear from somebody else that was watching in a different part of the country and just to hear their perspective. So we enjoy that kind of feedback, that kind of input, and uh, it allows us to discuss things and also, you know, kind of to reevaluate things and, you know, whether we should take things at a different approach. But uh, Jeremy, do you have any thoughts to add to that? Given my stellar reputation for clairvoyance in regards to predicting sporting events, I was shamed by the outcome and um, I can't help but sit here and be upset with Carolina and how they performed um I, and uh you know I there's nothing that will ever make me love pup, puppy monkey baby or Coldplay so um you know those, those things might have colored my uh my perception of the whole event but overall this is not my favorite Super Bowl yeah and before we close here I just want to point out that Kevin said that he was kind of embarrassed about how poorly he missed on this prediction and I just want to go back and discuss some of the other predictions that he's made. He said the Rockets <laughs> were going to win the NBA West. Uh, he, he, he's been almost wrong on every single prediction that he's had while being on this podcast. With the exception of one, he said that if he was buying stock in an NBA team, he would say it was the Golden State Warriors. He said that they, you know, he thought they were being undervalued. So, Kevin, I guess that's the one good thing that you have going from you right now. But do you have anything to say about your poor predictions? Oh, and that was such a front-running prediction, too, to, to pick the Golden State Warriors if they won the championship. Like, good God, that's, that's, that's almost not even a legitimate good prediction. Yeah, no, I am pitiful. I, some of you guys that have listened a while know that I gave up a lot of things like uh, drinking and substances. I'm actually a year today. I've had no drinks of any kind, so that's kind of a celebration for me. And then I've, I've long since given up gambling because you can see how pitifully <laughs> terrible I am at it and how much money it cost me in my life where I was still gambling. So, yeah, obviously um, there's a lot of reasons that I, I shouldn't put uh, money on on, on uh on things like that. <laughs> well, it, it's at least enjoyable to talk about and discuss. But guys, I really enjoyed this week's episode. Again, thanks to Paul Catalina for coming on today's show and Sergio Trevino. Make sure to go follow them on Twitter. Check out their work. And uh, it was a great episode. We enjoyed it. We hope you did too. Again, this has been episode 30 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. For my co-hosts, Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxton, I'm Austin Statton. And we'll see you next week. And brew responsibly. Please leave us a review. God forbid Kevin goes a week without feeling all warm and tingly while butt naked podcasting.
You've been listening to The Weekly Brew. 